in the pilgrimage I'm scheduled to take next year. Uh, we're very purposely, uh, the uh, Tecton Ministries very purposely goes to just the, uh, the sites that have ancient credence, uh, where a church is built, and because of that, we're not going, and that's one of the reasons. The other reason is it's so far north. Caesarea Philippi is in the northern part of Israel, and we're focused on Galilee, which is just south, uh, maybe 20 miles, but it's still south of uh, Caesarea Philippi. But the other is there is no church that marks this spot where this proclamation of St. Peter goes. There is, uh, if I remember right, it's a wheat mill set up with uh, the inscription, you are, you, are the, um, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the flesh and blood does not reveal this to you. And uh, from that spot, you can look across and you can see you know, not too far away, maybe quarter mile or whatever it is, but far, close enough where you can see it, uh, a cliff. And in that cliff is a cave. And in that cave, according to the ancient uh, legend, was a bottomless pit, a pit that went to the very bowels of hell itself. And uh, because of that connection, uh, the legend and all that stuff, the Romans, Caesarea Philippi being a Roman city, had a temple to Pan, P-A-N. The, the guy with the, uh, the uh, bottom of a goat and he played the pan flutes and all those things. Uh, so when Jesus says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, he could have literally just been pointing that image that is so common for our Roman, the Romans, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church that I am to establish. The church that is to be established on Peter, not just on his proclamation, not just on his faith, but on Peter himself. Peter as our first pope, and a lot of our Protestant brothers and sisters get a little uh, squeamish about that language or whatever, but we should not need to be squeamish because we have Old Testament uh, images at play here. And we hear about that in today's first reading. Eliakim is to be established as the keeper of the keys, or better image or better, better word for it would be steward. Somebody who's given the care of the house, not replacing the master, but the care of the house. And if that is true for Eliakim, it certainly is true for Peter, that he has been given the care of the church. He's not replacing Jesus Christ. That's what a lot of people think, seem to think about uh, the Pope, that we've replaced Jesus by, by saying we need a Pope and, and whatever. But no, he's the chief steward, the vicar. And we use that word purposely. We, uh, we know that uh, what it means to live vicariously through someone, and, and I know it's a terrible, um, uh, just jumped out of my head, but uh, the, uh, the image is one that's, that's kind of standard, unfortunately, but uh, the stereotypical dance mom, who is, is so uh, um, living vicariously through, uh, usually it's a daughter, that uh, she forces her daughter to do things that, uh, and, and to become something that the daughter may or may not want, or the, the pageant mom. I don't have a whole lot of experience except for uh, some movies or whatever, but they're, they're living vicariously through the other. But the vicar is somebody who's get, been given the care of, the control of. Uh, as uh, you might be aware, the, we don't use necessarily in canon law the term associate pastor. We use parochial vicar. Somebody who shares in the ministry of the, of the pastor, but uh, doesn't have the ultimate authority. That 
is the image that Peter is, that he's vicar. He's been given the control of the keys. He has authority, but not ultimate authority. So if he says, well, the moon is made of blue cheese, my favorite bad example, uh, it doesn't make the moon blue cheese. But when he declares something as judgment, that holds because our Lord has given him that authority. And he gives him that authority because he answers the question well. It's a question that uh, starts with, who do people say that I am? And if you, you search the scriptures, you see in the scriptures, uh, these are the answers that people give. Well, he's John the Baptist coming back to life. Herod gives that answer. Or he's Elijah. Uh, never mind that John the Baptist is the, the uh, Elijah figure. He's one of the prophets, Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Come back. But, of course, none of these are the correct answer. And Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? It's not that he's having an identity crisis or, or even uh, trying to take a poll to find out how he's coming across, but he is trying to test their faith. Who do you say that I am? And of course, as, as I, I will point out now, whenever Christ asks a question of any of the disciples, he's asking it of us as disciples too. And so... We need an answer. But Peter answers for the rest of the disciples. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, in so few words, it is packed with meaning. You're the Christ. You're the anointed one. The one that has been appointed by God, who God has poured his oil on and has commissioned. That's what Christ means. The Son of the living God. This is different than us being sons and daughters of God. We use that, that term because we are uh, created by God and loved by God as sons and daughters. But Jesus is the son of the living God, the son of the living God. That he somehow is already proclaiming this, this knowledge, this faith, that Jesus is God. And how it is, and he, so he uses the term son of God. And Jesus says, you have answered rightly. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood does not reveal this to you, but my Heavenly Father. And so I say to you, you are Peter. Peter, Petros, means rock. And upon this rock, and in Greek it gets a little complicated because rock is a feminine uh, word, and, and uh, Peter, of course, is masculine. So that's why some of our Protestant brothers and sisters try to explain it away. But again, Matthew is, uh, is trying to record the Lord as being grammatically correct. Despite what our culture says, that gender doesn't mean anything. Uh, it, it does. It means a lot, especially in the Old Testament and New Testament writings. As I already said, though, Peter gives a ready answer. And it's an answer that we can borrow for ourselves, but we have to answer, what does that mean for us? It's a, it's a question, who is Jesus Christ, that demands an answer. As C.S. Lewis gives us the trilemma, what he calls the trilemma. Is Jesus a lunatic? Is he insane, that, that he believes he is the Son of God, that he believes he's important, that he is that he's all this stuff? And we know that what happens with the lunatic is they tend not to have too many longtime followers. I think of somebody like Jim Jones, you know, once, once he drank the Kool-Aid, his cult, and that's it's kind, of, kind of an insane kind of thing, but it fell apart. 
He was insane, criminally insane. Or Jesus could be a liar. That he knows it's not true, but he's just trying to con people. And if that's true, then why do people continue to follow him? And if he is a liar, how do you explain the resurrection? How do you explain that after his death and resurrection, that his followers continue to proclaim the gospel, continue to proclaim who he is, continue to their own detriment, to their own death? I don't know about you, but I'm never going to die for a lie. I find it hard enough to die for a truth. I'm never going to die for a lie. Yet the disciples, especially the apostles, except for John, the beloved, of course, all died being martyred for the faith. Some in terrible, awful ways. We just had the feast of St. Bartholomew, who is flayed alive, skinned alive. Awful, awful things. So is Jesus a lunatic or is he a liar? Well, I don't think he's either. Nor did C.S. Lewis. So C.S. Lewis comes down to, he must therefore be Lord. And indeed he is. Again, if he is Lord, that explains everything. It explains the miracles. It explains how he, in one single word, can cast out demons. How, from a distance, he can heal the sick. How he can, he can heal and, and uh, uh, know things that, that he should not know. How he can be risen from the dead. And followers would continue to follow. And one thing that we need to remember is time and again and again, there have been people who've stepped forward and said, I'm the Messiah, I'm the anointed one, I'm the one that God has appointed. Oh, oh, because only those that really are deep into history would know this, but I'll point out Bar Kokhba. His, his name gets spelled different ways, and it's actually pronounced different, different ways, which is interesting because no one knows exactly how to pronounce his name uh, or spell it, but Bar Kokhba, about 110 A.D. in Judea, modern-day Israel, caused a riot. People thought he was the, the Messiah. People were following him as the Messiah. They had coins uh, minted for him because he was going to conquer and throw off Rome, and he was, going, he was going to do all these good things. Guess what happened when he died? His followers disbanded, and he was obscure, just a footnote in history. That's what happens with those that are not true, whether they're a lunatic or a liar, those that are not true. But Jesus Christ remains. Who is Jesus? We have to have an answer. And the church's answer in the church, and we can use that answer reliably because she's used that answer for 2,000 years, but Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity, is the Word of God made flesh, dwelling among us. And that's a good enough answer. But then what does that mean? What difference does it make in our lives? If Jesus Christ is Lord, if Jesus Christ reveals the Father to us as only the second person in the Trinity can, as Jesus says time and again, uh, unless you come to me, you cannot have life within you, or, or I am the way, the truth, the life, all these radical things, then what difference does that make? What well, means that we set aside anything that takes, would take precedence. We live in a world that has so much good in it, yes. But once that good becomes God in our lives, we've failed. 
Jesus Christ is alone God, along with the Father and the, the Spirit, of course, the Holy Trinity. But we need to worship God alone, and we need to follow his commandments. And I've been pondering this a lot. We, we live in a world that wants us to accept as, as the church uh, you know, all the broken, and yes, the church does. There's a place in this church, in every church, for the broken, or there ought to be. But that doesn't mean we, as a church, then neglect what made you broken in the first place. All the sin and all the, all the uh, hatred and abuse and all those things. The church, yes, is for broken people. But once we come to the church, it requires a change of life, too. I find myself pondering, why is it that people don't know who Jesus is? And I've used this example, and maybe way too much, but again, I'm still awed by it. How uh, there was a, a Catholic talk show I was listening to, and a woman called in, and all my years of Catholic education, not once did somebody say that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the, the person on the other end said, well, I'm sorry, but you must have missed it. I don't even know how you can miss it, even this morning in our opening prayer. We pray that Jesus Christ, Lord, in our creed, we pray it. We, we proclaim it in the readings. We proclaim it with uh, almost every day. And I think it comes down to one fact. It's not that it's not taught. It is not caught. That it hasn't made an influence on the person. That, that the person can hear it and hear it and hear it and it goes in one ear and out the other. And that we simply don't understand what it means. And then, if it, we don't understand what it means, how can it have an influence in our lives? Maybe that's why the church is floundering, or so it seems. And yet I have hope that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, because there are good people who come forward and say, I know who Jesus Christ is, that he is Lord and God, and that I need to give my life and live my life in conformity with that fact. You know, the church teaches that Jesus Christ is Lord and God, and rightly so. Anything else, we are the most miserable of people. If Jesus is not who he says he is, who we proclaim him to be, then we're worse than the worst. And it goes hand in hand with what we are attempting to do this year with this Eucharistic revival. We live in a, in a culture that only 30-some percent, and of course, you know how I feel about statistics, but only about 30-some percent of Catholics believe that Jesus Christ, the Eucharist, is Jesus Christ. I find myself pondering that time and again. How can we not understand as Catholics that it is Jesus Christ? We say it, body, blood, soul, and divinity, that we, we worship the Eucharist. If Jesus Christ is not in the Eucharist, or not the Eucharist, the Eucharist is not Jesus Christ, sorry, I'll use a bad word, but it, we are the most damnable of all people. If it is not truly Jesus that we worship in this Eucharist, that we receive in this Eucharist, we are the most miserable of all people. I think it was Dorothy Day that, that said, if the Eucharist is not Jesus, well, then it be damned. But if it is Jesus, we need to change our lives. We need to understand what it is and who it is we receive. We need to re understand that it is Christ. That as we step forward, whether we receive him uh, uh, in sacrament or we receive him in spirit, because we're unable to receive him in receiving the sacrament, we receive Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity, and that this makes a difference in our lives.
that it transforms us. Tomorrow we celebrate the Feast of St. Augustine. St. Augustine, as I wrote in the pastor's notes, is a real saint, a hero of mine. I I know I have so many, but St. Augustine in one of his homilies taught that the Eucharist makes us what we receive. And yes, the health and fitness industry have taken it, but we are what we eat. So become what we receive. He's telling us when we come to the Eucharist, we receive, and in the presence of the body of Christ, that incorporates us into his body, incorporates us into the church. We have to have an answer of who is Jesus. We have to have an answer of who is this Eucharist that we receive. And then we have to live our lives as demonstrating that answer. This day, the Lord would stand before us and ask us that same question. And it's okay to say, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, to model Peter. And it's okay to thank God for the great sacrament of reconciliation, to say, I haven't lived it perfectly. Even, even St. Peter, after today's proclamation that we hear in this gospel passage, we just turn the page and we see him, God forbid, that should never happen to you, Lord. But he strove to live the rest of his life in conformity with the fact that it was Jesus, the Son of God, second person in the Trinity, the Son of the living God, that he worshipped and proclaimed.